Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an Acast supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ideas in Writing Hello, welcome to episode 10, yes, 10 of Ideas in Writing. It's a podcast about words that are spoken, performed, published, sung, and which, quite honestly, sometimes beggar belief. The very slender premise, uh, so slender that I sometimes forget to mention it, is that both the guest and I bring along a single word that we think uh, encapsulates what we're talking about or is designed to uh, spark conversation. The guest this time round is the journalist Peter Oborn, whose book, The Assault on Truth, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump and the Emergence of a New Moral Barbarism was published this year. And it's, um, well, it's an attempt to call attention to the lying that seems to go on without repercussions. And of course, it's very topical at the moment. We talk about conservatism and in effect what's happened to it, uh, what the Tory party has lost. We talk about Peter's start in journalism and when he first became interested in the idea and impact of politicians lying. Um, we spoke a couple of weeks ago and it's taken me a while to edit this and sadly the uh, sound quality was a bit variable. I think I had some issues with the uh, computer audio suppressing noise. I'm still learning about this so you know for which I apologise but it's still well worth listening to. Um, so here it is. This is Power Integrity with Peter Oborn. very much for uh, for joining us how are you huge pleasure good well that's it's, a, it's an honor for me um well it's and, actually uh, I, I love bookshops you see this is the thing I, ah right yeah. you spend I lots of time love, in bookshops yes and uh i can still remember at the age of um 11 or 10 going into a second-hand bookshop actually in hazelmere and discovering uh, about 15 copies of William Brown books 
you know, uh, by Rich Mark Thompson. And oh, they're yes, negotiating yes. at turn six each. Mm-hmm. And negotiating the uh, shopkeeper down from turn six months to two pounds and buying the lot. But I think it cost me yes. about one a pound, about, about two pounds or something. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, <laughs> no, I used to love those books. Uh, and I, I they, were, they were one of those that I uh, got out of the library when I was, yeah, yeah I suppose. I don't know, nine perhaps, yes. Um, but so does that mean that it's uh, you get a, a little bit of a thrill when you see your books in the bookshops? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Particularly when they're well displayed, I have to say. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes like of course. prominent in the front of the shop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll make sure there's one in, one in the shop window. Um, uh, do, is that the same? Uh, I, I think... Um, is that the same thrill you get as a, a journalist seeing your byline, or is that a different uh, thing? Well, books are a big thing. I mean, a, 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 an article is is can be a great effort and you know an achievement, but you know a book is is like a vocation. You know, this book in many ways is like twenty years. Work. I mean, the effect of twenty years' work and mm. and the yeah. blood, sweat, and tears. The, the difference between writing a book and writing an article is untold. Uh, yeah. You go into a um, deep, you have to live the book in order to write it, and you have to sort of retreat. It's, it's a kind of spiritual, not quite the right word, but it's a very deep experience. Um, and uh, it's yeah, an article, you know, you get up, somebody rings you up, you knock it off. Um, maybe it takes five or six hours. You have to research it, and then you've got to check it, and then you've got to, uh, and then and then it's a, a done with, and you go down the pub or whatever it may be. A book, it stays with you. It, it's I, I, you can get very depressed writing. I mean, it, it, it's very internal. There's no inspiration from it. It's a I sometimes forget. I'm not normally depressive at all, but I get you can get terribly depressive writing books. Like you feel the world's come to an end. <laughs> Do you find uh, that you enjoy the discipline of writing a column regularly as you did? Um, yes, I do. I, I don't have a column at the moment, and it's actually also quite a um, a relief because. Uh, it gives you more time to write me, more time to write books, which are, are more interesting because they're more likely to be long-lasting. You're trying to yeah. set out a scheme of ideas or show the world in a different way. Um, whereas in an article, you didn't say in an article, but it, it, it go, it's gone tomorrow. You know, Although I guess nowadays most people's articles are, are very accessible, much more accessible than they used yeah. to be yeah, exactly. uh, online. Yeah, they, they do remain online. But what happens with that is that one's enemies uh, pillage them for out-of-context quotes in order to show that you've, <laughs> you've been contradictory or yes. double standard. Yeah, that, that must be a, a particular... I'm not sure it's a, a burden, but it must be particularly opposite uh, for you in the sense that your writing does describe a bit of a journey, doesn't it, from maybe where you were, I don't know, 30 years ago to where you are well, now? I say that. I'm not sure. It's a very interesting matter of perspective. Mm. I mean, are you, is, is your, are you certainly, you see movement. You, there you are at the station. 
and you see a train moving, but you know that illusion sometimes it's the other train that's moving and you're standing still, or sometimes you're standing still and it's the other train that your, your train is moving. Now, I, I think, I'm not saying I haven't changed my ideas, I sh so I should have done, but generally speaking, there's been a much more, the conservative, um, you know, party or conservative people, the, the conservative doctrine has moved much more than I have. I think it's moved away from me, not the other way around. Sure. So I'm more, I would argue that I'm roughly in the same place, perhaps, you know, only a bit more knowledgeable, maybe. Mm -hmm. Whereas the conservative party, which... Um, it has has and conservative journalism has moved very wrong, very rapidly away from conservative principles and ideas. Well, I should say we haven't mentioned the title of the book. It's the Assault on Truth, which uh, came out in January. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, no, it came out on the fourth no. of Feb. Oh, fourth of Feb. I was even nearer then. The subtitle being Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, and the emergence of a new moral barbarism. Mm. Um, and I think. Uh, you just you've just summed up really in a sense where your perspective is from a well, I don't know what, what you describe would you would you describe it as small c conservatism or um old Tory or I don't know well I I, I don't I think labels of often um can be misleading but you know I I uh, am a I, I I have done quite a lot of reading of the history and the philosophy which is not much of it of the Conservative Party. One of the places of the one of the, one of the things about the Conservative Party is that there are far less books of Conservative doctrine uh, than there are books of sort of Marxist doctrine or even Labour doctrine, and that's it's it's a very remarkable thing that you know there have been many more history, histories of the Conservative of the Communist Party. I think I'm right in saying it used to be the case. I was assured by a political historian, and there have been of the Conservative Party because the, he, he said that academic historians all tend to be further on the left. They're more interested in communism than they are in conservatism. But conservatism is more sort of uh, related to the to what it is to be British, mm. and and I think there is a general disposition which has been very well articulated, quite often by writers of the left. You know, Orwell was the classic. Uh, place in point, but also by writers on the right, right? and you'd point here towards the, the two great figures being Oakshot and Burke. Uh, Oakshot's quite hard to, I mean, they both kind of say the same thing in the one way that you should beware of grand, excuse me, grand revolutionary ideas and and hold fast to what is easily, you can be, you can really affect, i.e. your immediate surroundings, your value your friendships, be kind to your fellow men and women, and don't break the, the rules like telling the truth uh, rather than telling lies. Whereas the left is much more, it gives much more um, scope and, and tolerance of grand thinkers, you know, Goodwin or um, Marx or... Lenin, who and they, they they look at the ends and they say, look, you you've got to smash the class system, and it doesn't matter if you tell a few lies on the way. So it's been normally conservatism, which it's abandoned. When it, when you describe it, of course, it it sounds like, as you say, a sort of Britishness, uh, 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 almost common sense. Although, and I, I, uh, I recognise common sense is 
No, I'm strongly in favour of common sense. You are, yeah, strongly. So, so where does your your conservatism come from then? Were you, do you, was it? Uh, do you think you were brought up as a conservative, or was it uh, a kind of independent discovery? No, I think I was brought up, but not in a kind of political sense of conservative. Just that it was, it, it was uh, you favoured, you thought, and you were brought up to think that conservative party um, embodied national values. I think that was the point. Mm. Whereas Labour Party, which I get without dismissing it or being disrespectful to it, uh, of not, and you have to acknowledge its immense achieve, historical achievements. Above all, you know, you look at the NHS, but plenty of other things. It has often been sectarian or just represented one section of society. That was the idea that there was a um, something which brought the nation together, uh, but not liberal. Yeah, no, but liberal liberalism is. But by the time I, when I was growing up, right in the seventies, liberalism was not was a conservative notion. Hmm. Uh, yeah, the Liberal Party was really social democratic or even socialist, I felt. And if you wanted to look at a find a Gladstonian liberal, there you, there you had it in Maggie Thatcher. I, I, I just didn't think that intellectually it had anything to say at all. Um, yeah, I may have been arrogant. I'm not sure I was, but yeah, <laughs> I don't think the Liberal Party had a lot to say in the uh, 70s. But it sounds as if you're... Um... Uh, attachment to conservatism and uh, and there, thereby the sort of Tory party of, I guess, from Ted Heath. I mean, I remember um, Ted Heath and, and I remember uh, as a young boy seeing him on television and thinking, yeah, he's okay. But it sounds as if that your response to that was instinctive and cultural uh, rather than a, an intellectual Attachment, if you see what I mean. Yeah, but it, it also remember that it was the you know, the calamitous decade of the seventies underway. Mm. Um, so three day weeks and um, trade union, over mighty trade union, mm. um, and an industrial collapse. And it was it was it, Labour did not ha didn't have at that stage. I felt the answers to the quite significant economic and even social problems of the nation at the time. So you went to um, Christ College, Cambridge, to read history. Was that yeah. a love of yours? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sort of naturally a historian. Yeah. I, I, I learned a lot, a lot more about history since uh, leaving university. Really, yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to be disrespectful of the wonderful people you taught me, but you understand, you know, you, I've had the privilege of kind of um, watching, reporting great event, political events, reporting foreign wars, mm. uh, watching the, you know, seeing history close up, and also reading it a lot more. You understand reading now, reading history, the role of individuals much more clearly. It was very easy at his university to think that it was all about structures and about, you know, ine historical inevitability, I found quite an attractive idea because, you know, you looked in terms of social long-range long changes. But what you do now is um, you can see how one person can really radically change events, the whole, mm. everything. Church, Churchill had been knocked over by that 
was it a taxi in New York in the early 30s, you know, you wondered probably Britain wouldn't have fought that war. And so there you, you kind of, and I yeah. think we see that again and again. It may be an over you see again and again individuals um, change, doing, thing, doing things which are really, really significant, have enormous significance. Is there, is there also a benefit in uh, uh, that longer perspective looking back further? The, the history now of that time through the 60s, 70s uh, is, is a different story to living through it, you know, in a sense, yeah. you're too close to it. And you don't really see the, uh, the big picture. Well, in a way, you were, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe when you're 21 or however old you are, you, you, you tend to be very intellectually arrogant. You think, and you tend to be very schematic and intellectual about things. Well, I was an unsufferable young man, probably. Whereas, <laughs> you know, you've learned, you should have learned by the time you reach my age, uh, humility about these things. And also quite a lot of wisdom because you've failed so many times to correctly analyze events. So uh, when you were at Cambridge, were you political then? Well, no. just interested well, in politics. I, 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 when I went there, I was very keen to be a Marxist. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I didn't. And I um, tried to hang out with Marxists. And I did find it all. And I read Das Kapital, and I read Alcester, and I read, I don't know what else I read. And uh, I just, eventually, I, I did, it was very, I, could, it didn't, I couldn't make any headway with it. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt, I rather despaired of myself. I, as I say, I, and then I became a much more, after that, I sort of became more right, more conventionally right wing. And so, so you would just. And the Labour Party, the Labour government was failing at the time. Mm, yeah, but you, you were tempted to stay on and do a PhD. I did actually stay and do a PhD for about nine months, I think. Yeah, and what, what was that going to be about? It was something. To, it was to do with nineteenth-century sort of popular religion superstition. Oh, really? I, 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 I really couldn't make any headway with that. I, I got bored stiff actually. <laughs> I, I empathise with that. I empathise with that. And uh, it wasn't for me that particular way forward. But you so, you found yourself um, you found yourself in journalism. Yes, after one or two failed ventures elsewhere. Yeah. Was that uh, an an easy transition for you? Is no, that something you don't? I worked in the city briefly, and then I uh, I was a failure at that too. So I had two uh, full starts. <laughs> Quite, it's not a very good thing to. It's not a great place to be. Actually. And so, I, in default of anything else, I made an attempt to get into journalism. I set myself up actually to be journalist rather rather boldly. <laughs> articles and submitting them to publications. But you clearly had a talent, and, uh... and I think I, did, I remember when I finally got a job. On the first day of my defunct magazine owned by Robert Maxwell, I um, the first day I remember it was still the days of typewriters and um, carbons, and um, I remember sitting down and writing a story, and knowing I'd come home. It was quite interesting feelings. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I also read somewhere that you 
thoroughly enjoy working from home now. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I spent about 20, no, 20, 20, 15 years or so in, in newspaper offices, which are quite exhilarating, exciting places. But uh, yeah, I, then I, um, I went free in 19, about 20 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, Dirty Days, as we called in the, the Richard Desmond, um, uh, offered voluntary redundancy at the Express. It was quite right. a large day. And mm -hmm. I took it and went freelance. And, right. and I thought I would really miss offices, and I never have at all, but not, <laughs> not for a single second. So uh, so lockdown has been uh, a doddle for you? Well, yeah, it's just been a, continu a continuation, yeah, <laughs> it was normally like. I mean, I'm very aware of how terrible it's been, and it really mm -hmm. eats at me. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I've seen so much suffering and so much heroism, actually, uh, but uh, personally, I'm, you know, I've been very lucky. Um, so, I mean, uh, we'll come on to the book in a moment. But as you know, the the, the very slender premise of this podcast is um, that we each bring a word to the conversation. Maybe you'd like to uh, let me know what your word is, and, I, and I'll tell you mine. So, what do you mean by word to the conversation? Well, be just more... oh, I see. Uh, just a word, a single word. That will that will uh, that means something to you that uh, perhaps sparks conversation. Uh, for example, um, I can give you my word, and maybe that might spark right. something. Uh, the word that uh, uh, occurred to me was power. Yeah. Well, um, I will give you integrity. Integrity. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, yes, uh, and and those are probably two forces that. Uh, work at right angles to each other, <laughs> power corrupts. Yeah, so uh, power occurred to me because reading through The Assault on Truth, it occurred to me that uh, underlying the ability to lie, um, tell untruths, however you want to put it, with impunity is, it must be power. It must be, um, uh, in a sense, sort of hidden power. Uh, I don't know whether that uh, struck any chords with you. Well, I think there are. I have thought of very, very much about the the telling of untruths and what lies behind it. I mean, it's it's not just that there are politicians who tell untruths, and there's opposition politicians, there's ministers, i.e., those in power, and there's journalists tell untruths, and so there's advertising men, and um, and and all of them. I think I don't think power is the only reason. I mean, I think there is one interpretation is that, that telling lies is a manifest, in itself a manifestation of power because you are so powerful that you can determine yourself what the truth is. And I think that mm. applies to um, dictatorships and authoritarian states and, uh, you know, Stalin or uh, Xi in China, etc. They can, generally speaking, do that. They can say... And it's it's a it's it's a crime to challenge the truth as laid down by the Communist Party or the dictator. All uh, then, I you know, the other sets of lives are driven by money. I mean, if you look at advertising, which has been a huge influence in political discourse, promotion. Mm. That's money. That, 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 you know, you're trying to sell something to a an apathetic public, and and the way you do that is through through lies. Um, and then, um, I, I, sorry, I rephrase that through creating a, an amazingly attractive 
vision of a product which may or may not be true, or creating something which doesn't exist as a desire to own something. Yeah. Or then, yeah, then you get demagogic lines, which I think we've we thought we'd beaten them. Mm. They've come back, and they come from they're not from ministers; they're from people who can uh, arouse the populace in a. And that's that is that those are very much now the lives of our time. Uh, so you, and uh, then you get just lives for sheer fun of it. I think um, you know the amusement of creating falsehoods, which then take on a sort of body of their own, take on a life yeah. of their own. Uh, you, you, I guess you first uh, started to speak about um, lies or political lies. Uh, was that around the US election when George W. Bush was, uh, was re-elected? No, before, before then, I think. Oh, really? What was that? Well, there was a particular moment, um, and I was sitting in a, a junior. I was a junior political reporter on the Evening Standard, and I was sitting in a in a um, committee room listening to Willie Wardgrave give evidence uh, to MPs. And he suddenly said, "I heard him say this that it's okay." He said something that there are times when ministers can lie, uh, and I and I sort of immediately thought that was a, as a story, and I did. I it became a little sensation. Uh, mm. For about a day and a half, because uh, it, it, it it was presented, which was very unfair to Willie Wardegrave, as the most scrupulous person, as ministers justifying lying. And so I, it, it goes right, really, really right back to the start of my career as a journalist, a political journalist, that is. And then I uh, had endured. Then I was really affected by. I was shattered actually by the like the falsehoods told by the Blair government about Iraq justify a war and I, I really had I, that caused the kind of and not just by the Blair government but with the complicity of the intelligence services and um, journalists and that caused a kind of crisis for me because I had assumed that the British intelligence was I, we by coming from the conservative background I'd assumed that British MI6 and some honest organization I mean driven by patriotism and, and a regard for evidence and, and empirical in its methods and to find it collaborating in the creation of the weapons of mass destructions lie to justify an illegal war I, I, it was a very it was a politically it was a very big moment in my life mm. I mean, it was a complete change in me I, thereafter I, I had to reconfigure uh, my idea of the virtue of the British state just going back to that uh, time then, you were a political correspondent. On the Spectator at the time. On the Spectator, right. So did you have access to politicians then? Oh, uh, yeah, you got enormous yeah. access. So, so at what point in that uh, process was we, as we slipped into the, uh, the, the war with uh, Iraq, at what point did you become aware that it was built on that uh, dodgy dossier? Well, I mean, one of the uh, things was that I, did, I didn't actually uh, actively support the war or support the war, but I didn't afterwards. I and I didn't. I was always sceptical about the claims about Western weapons of mass destruction. I, I actually got, it went back over what I write, wrote. I never said we should invade Iraq. Mm. But what I didn't do was to really analyse the, uh, the claims being made by ministers and politicians. Uh, in favour of the war, uh, and with the 
rigor, which I should have. And uh, afterwards, I found that mortifying. And then to discover through the pattern inquiry, the evidence given to it, not the conclusions from that judge, mm. uh, the way in which the British intelligence services had collaborated with Downing Street to put out misinformation and falsehood about Iraq, uh, WMD as it was called, that was quite gut-wrenching actually. Yeah. Quite shattering. Caused me actually to re-look uh, again at the way I understood uh, the role of the British state in history. I mean, it wasn't history anyway. Sure. And, and presumably the role of the press as well. Oh, very much so, because you had the hugely, uh, in fact, because I, I carried out a study afterwards uh, of the press reporting of the war, and it was fascinating to see how uh, easy it was for journalists to repeat the, the lies of the, um, given them by, by the state. Do you think that was a turning point precisely because it was about uh, the war and, and, it, and it invoked a sort of patriotism, maybe misplaced? Well, I, I, well it was also that it, it was, I, I, I started to realise that the, there were agencies and newspapers not acting in uh, good faith, you mm. know, with falsehoods in order to, and to justify a war, which was such a disaster. Yes, I mean, the, uh, I wonder if the, the, the consequences of the war drew attention to the causes more than if it had been a mitigated success in some sense. <laughs> yes, you know, that is true. So let's assume that the, the, um, <clears throat> the Iraq war had been a success. I don't think it would have mattered. Yeah. And that was the calculation of the promoters of the war, I think, that the war was virtuous. And would succeed, and therefore they were able to. They were somehow morally entitled to say these things. So, um, coming back to the the book, then you start off in the in the book talking about the the origins of, of political lying, which, given what we've said, there are all kinds of lies, and I, I imagine the the popular response to that would be politicians have always lied, but but you're pinpointing a, a, a genesis of, of this kind of lying. It, it is, it's a very unsatisfactory thing to say politicians always lie because it, it molds into politicians always lie and then you say, and that gives such a free pass to the ones who lie and such a, uh, and, and means that you don't give proper credit to those who don't lie. And uh, yeah, of course it's true that politicians lie. Actually, when I was researching this book, I'm I had a long conversation with a, an academic in the History of Parliament Trust. I'm just forgetting his name, but I, he told me that the Popish plot, J.P. Kenyon's book on the Popish plot, is, is, is the classic text. And I hadn't, don't think I've read it, so I, I got, it's on my reading list now. <laughs> so of course, there's always been lies, but I do demonstrate beyond any doubt that political lying has risen astronomically since Boris Johnson has become Prime Minister. And in fact, I've sent, I've got a huge list of lies. He just tells them all the time. And on the floor, and I'm going to use the term falsehoods and misrepresentations for the things he says on the floor of the House of Commons. And they've gone astronomically up. And I've sent a list to the current Speaker of the House. 
of these, but he hasn't even acknowledged them. I've seen your I've seen your website, uh, <laughs> your catalogue of uh, quite amazing. Boris Johnson's lies. Yeah, and they're they're scattered throughout this book. I mean, as you say in the book, you haven't got room for them all. I haven't got a very small number of them, but a small percentage number of them are in the book. And and they've become almost uh, well, I, I, they've become famous in a way. Those lies, haven't they? The lies. The, the, persistence of those lies. Um, talking about integrity, tell us about Erskine May and the Ministerial Code. See, well, Erskine May, I haven't got the quote in front of me, but it's it's very clear you can't lie upon them. Uh, and it says it in this lovely uh, language. And then the Ministerial Code, actually, here we are, I've got the book. Uh, and the Ministerial Code, it's very, very clear that a minister who misleads Parliament should come to the floor of the House and put it right. But of course, if you have a prime minister who is completely unbothered by that and doesn't think it's a problem to lie to Parliament and mislead Parliament, and then of course it's not, it's not, um, it doesn't, it ceases to apply. So there's no, and there's no real way that Parliament, well, Parliament can actually legislate or to, uh, use procedure in order to enforce integrity, but with a Tory majority of eighty, that's very unlikely to happen. Led by, particularly when the party is led by Johnson. Here, here's Erskine May. The, the Commons may treat the making of a deliberately misleading statement as a contempt, i.e., a contempt of that. That's what it says. Um, and the ministerial code, it is of paramount importance that ministers give accurate and truthful important information to Parliament. I mean, that's gone. That, that's uh, been abandoned. Yes, I did notice that the uh, one of the first things that Boris Johnson did was write the new introduction to the ministerial yeah. code, which uh, which says contains that um, those yeah. words. Um, so tell me what uh, the role of uh, Gonzo journalism. I think there is something here. I'm trying to work out what it is about the about journalism, which has enabled uh, enabled the change of public culture, particularly since this is. A government of journalists, um, Johnson and Gove, uh, and in many ways, essentially, Trump was a manifestation of, of celebrity journalism, mass media. What, what, what do you? What, there's been one really interesting, terrible change, actually, which is the cult of me, me, in journalism. It is the lived experience of the journalists, which again and again you're taught. You arrive in a newsroom. It's I. It's what I saw. It's what I did. If you, if you notice, whenever some famous person dies, you get a wave of journalists to put out photographs of themselves of the dead person and, and wow. tell how they met one. So if you know, you notice this particularly mm. um, uh, troubles a troubling uh, phenomenon. Now it's about me. Now Gonzo journalism starts off with uh, Hunter S. Thompson, doesn't it? Mm. He's a brilliant writer, and he and he attends a, a a conference, and it's all about his own, his him, and his drug taking, and and it, and it, he pulls it off brilliantly in the literary way. But he, he he doesn't attempt, and that's the whole point of the book, to explain what was actually going on at the conference he was supposedly covering. And so the journalism becomes, it converts reality, or add indeed the art of journalism from trying to describe events and say what's going on to a sort of literary exercise. And now when, he, when it's Hunter S. Thompson, that's, that's one thing. 
But when it's, uh, you know, Boris Johnson running about politics or a lot of other people running about the Sun coverage or the, you know, the Times coverage even, yeah. then you get a culture where facts don't matter anymore. Yeah. That's what I was trying to argue. I probably haven't explained it very well. No, no, that, that, that's, it makes sense. Uh, and you then argue that uh, Boris Johnson is the first gonzo prime minister. Well, that's just how he governs in very, in many ways. You know, he's full of fictitious uh, statements. Um, he is almost as if he's, you know, I know he isn't, I'm sure he doesn't take drugs, but he's almost as if he is crazed on drugs in some ways. It's, it's a series of fantasy moments. Uh, and of course, the press plays along with this too. You know, the, the, there's a sort of personal drama of Johnson's. Uh, premiership, you know, when he fell ill, it was, I think the, it was really when the sun, the, the fun sun splash, when he came out of hospital, I think it was on Good Friday, and now it really is a Good Friday, it was so impious, uh, um, and he, there's a very noticeable readiness to buy into and promote and to disseminate the narratives created within Dining Street by Johnson, however, false or however malevolent in some cases they are. So I want to just uh, put something to you, or at least ask a question about a couple of things that you've written, or uh, I've read you've written in a couple of places. Mm. You say on more than one occasion that Johnson is brilliant, Mm. the most gifted politician of his generation. Mm. What what does that mean? I mean, and can, can a man who's so wedded to deception be brilliant. Um, why can't he be brilliant, by the way? If he's really uh, I, su- I suppose uh, you can he, have he, a brilliant he, criminal. Yeah, yeah, and the, I, I, the, I, the reason I said yes and I, I, I thought it is that I wrote and I thought it at the time. I thought when he's under, he was had a rem- astonishing gift to to describe politics. And when I used to engage with him and he was editor of The Spectator, the conversations we had, he was so quick and um, to appreciate the what I was saying and to take it beyond what I thought myself and to reinterpret in a really brilliant way to see. Uh, and I was, um, I was dazzled by that. And um, that is what I meant. And of course, it, I think my interpretation was justified. He has become Prime Minister. Now, what he, what I hadn't appreciated and fully appreciated and should have done is, but it really shook me. I didn't think that he, he would govern like this through deceit. I didn't anticipate that at all, or scarcely. I, thought, I, I was worried about it, but I didn't think that. I thought the machinery of Dining Street because when you get into number 10 Downing Street, you're immediately surrounded by civil servants and quite serious people who are going to make it difficult for you to um, fabricate and lie. Um, and then you're going to have, uh, you, you have the, the procedures of the ministerial code and other principles. I, I imagine that he would be become quite a conventional prime minister. There I was completely and so that was when I started to think that I would write a book. When the the, lie, the, the lies just went on and on and on, and they, he brought in his, uh, he got rid of a lot of the um, careful, scrupulous people who he in, inherited in Downing Street and in, in the civil service, and 
brought in a lot of people who simply fabricated. So just to be absolutely clear, the, the, the degree of uh, deception, I suppose, you mentioned it with, uh, with Tony Blair, of course, and his government, and to some extent with uh, uh, David Cameron, and, but it goes back, as you say, quite a long way. But it's of a different order. Entirely different, entirely different order. And I mean, it's also much more, I think, that the danger. There was always a moral position behind labor lying or left wing lying, i.e., the ends, you know, we have a noble vision for the world. There are these venal forces, mainly journalists and right wing newspapers and very rich people are to get you. Who, and we, we are we are therefore franchised to or entitled to lie in order to use the same techniques which are used against us. Now, this is lying from the right, whereas I explained earlier in our discussion, uh, is dedicated to, has at the heart of it, a, a, a guiding principle of due process and, and in favour of, of truth-telling. When it comes from the right, it really becomes very dangerous because it's divorced from values. Mm. That's peculiar um, asymmetry, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I discovered a quote, was it from Bertrand Russell, saying this, you know, that, that once it becomes utterly immoral, uh, then I, um, you know, the, the, the world becomes, you know, you can go off in horrible directions. Mm. Johnson has not demonstrated a sense of any, uh, you know, of, of any... I mean, well, the person he used to be as mayor of London, let alone as editor of the Spectator, was quite an optimistic, cosmopolitan, internationalist, tolerant kind of person. The government he now leads is getting progressively less tolerant, more divisive, more hostile to minorities, more ready to fight very dangerous cultural battles. But again, to be clear, you're you're not saying that this is driven by any kind of ideology from him. Well, it isn't. I don't know, but there is an ideology of it takes you dangerously close to an alt right uh, idea. Other people can fill the ideological gap there, and uh, I think he feels a bit like he saw a bus with Downing Street on it, and he jumped on the bus. He liked. Yes. So, I mean, the, the big project there was Brexit, of course, which was uh, yes. a big flag to rally around. You you supported Brexit. I did. Originally. I was wrong. Yeah. Oh, right. I, I, I mean, there was there are still very, very valid reason, arguments for Brexit. And, um, but I, I failed to understand the consequences. I mean, I, I think most people did. <laughs> and uh, it, the power it would give to an, an assault on representative democracy in Britain, an assault on parliament, an assault on the rule of law, an assault on truth. It's much bright. I've written here a book about truth mainly, but it's it's a much wider, it's a much bigger and more systemic assault on all the things which have defined Great Britain, really, uh, certainly since the kind of second half of the 20th, 19th century, you know, representative democracy, not democracy. Yeah. Civil, yeah. independent civil service. Um, 
a, a kind of idea of the, of the free press. Um, the, the, there's a lot of other stuff which they've absolutely they 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 they, they are, are, are preying on. It's the Tory Party, as I talk, used to be a very wide, pragmatic, generous party. It's becoming a very narrow, uh, ideological, sectarian party. Yeah, I wondered about that. I don't know what, what, how you stand on uh, uh, Peter Hitchens' approach, uh, which I, I probably can't characterise particularly accurately, but it seems to me that he, he thinks uh, political parties are doomed. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah I, I can see why he thinks that, because if you look at, if you compare the mass parties of the post-war, which came to that height, really, at the end of the post-war era, uh, with the shadows the kind of, of what you, of those parties you have now, really they've been captured in many ways by very wealthy men. Um, but if he thinks that political, I, I'm not sure they're doomed. I just think they're in terrible crisis. And in order, because of the collapse of mass membership and the way in which very large, very generous, lavish donors have been able to buy up the system. That's probably why I chose the word power, because it, it's interesting to speculate, in, in a sense, who's pulling the strings behind the, uh, the fig leaf of, of a political party. Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's not the, um, the party itself has become in many ways, and this also applies they're not quite as badly to the Labour Party, but it does apply to them too. Uh, a sort of, um, sort of, almost an empty thing now, because with certain symbols and the same legal structures which it's always had, you, know, you can trace uh, the Conservative Party legally back to the uh, mid nineteenth century, and it hasn't. Well, it's the same thing in that way, but its nature is very mm. different effectively been bought. And it's a, been bought as a way of buying the, a British democracy, which takes you into a, a, a crisis point. Uh, and, and we have to fight. It's obviously now that we have to fight for values which we took for granted. I, I, so I do think it's a, a, a metaphorical call to arms, right? to try and save the values which, you know, which get, have given us a decent a relatively decent society, and I'm not saying a perfect one, but have enabled us to talk to each other in an honest and uh, mutually comprehensible way. Let's talk about that, how to fight back, which is the, the last chapter. Uh, if you wanted to give people, I don't know, two things they could do to contribute to the, the, the rescue of this system, to fight back against that power and to restore that integrity, what would they be? You can demand that your politicians uh, tell you the truth. You can, uh, if you hear somebody lying, demand its retraction by writing to your MP. If you get a weak reply, get on, get into your local media, get your local media to name and shame it. Um, mm -hmm. You can demand. I think we do need a, 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 a change in the law to make to make uh, Parliament take lying seriously. It's unacceptable that it's abandoned the protections against uh, falsehood and misrepresentation on the floor yeah. of the House. And I think as, as voters, we are in, in, 
we have a duty if we want if we like if we want to save the system uh, to ask for a, a change in the law and namely that ministers should within a week correct false statements in hindsight that would go a very long way i have to say i'm quite shocked that the current speaker to whom i sent the book hasn't even bothered to acknowledge it um and, and then it, more and more the the machinery of uh, states is being Used. And so, if you're a public servant, this is specifically for officials. We're going to have you have now. You're asked to become party to a government lie. You must ask for a written order instructing you uh, to say that, so that it's clear where that's coming from. And then you must keep the copy and send it to your probably your boss, the permanent secretary, or whoever it is. And if you are the victim of a lie, I think, uh, and quite a lot of people are. Soon. Um, I mean, I don't mean for journalists, but an ordinary person or um, somebody who is not, or, yeah, sue. Uh, and sue Boris Johnson if he lies about you. Yeah. Uh, and um, you, you, that is what the law is for. And um, if you, and do feel free to serve, serve that writ for defamation in a, in a public place where the media can film it. Uh, and you, we, but collectively, I, I, I'm sure there are lots of other ideas. It's just that at the moment, through the complicity of the uh, mass media, we have a situation where ministers, including the British Prime Minister, habitually cheat and lie. We, we can, that ultimately will lead to the destruction of uh, British, not just democracy, but British society. The, the, power, the Prime Minister is, is, is an enormously powerful figure. He can. Uh, declare war, and he sometimes needs to. How can you believe? How can you believe him, uh, this man when he says we've got to go? And people should sacrifice their lives. Can't. Mm. And, um, it's it's a tragedy, uh, and we inherited something really special, particularly I think from World War Two, when we, well, however much we all disagree with each other about politics and many other things, mm. we we came together to, to fight for something decent. Worlds, and I have to throw all of this away. An enormously trivial and frivolous thing to do. And by the way, I I do accept as a journalist the last thirty years my role in that. No, I appreciate that, and I think that comes through through in the book as well. And I, I think uh, where you started uh, when we talked about journalism and the and the uh, the longevity of a of a book, I think that's a, a great reason for people to buy this book and have it on the on their shelves to 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 look back and remind themselves. Of what happened <laughs> over the last few years, because I certainly found myself getting quite cross about it, <laughs> and and thinking, yeah, why isn't somebody doing something about it? But I guess that last chapter, the call to action, and those those ideas you just—I uh, think we must. I, and I, I'm going to pursue. I'm not going to let up on getting a reaction from the speaker. Getting, yeah. I'm very, I'm slightly puzzled by the reluctance, inherent reluctance of. Politicians to get involved and say this. I mean, I've provided the evidence. Not nobody's picked it up and run with it in Parliament yet. I think they will. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. Peter, thank you very much. I know you've got to go, uh, but I really appreciate uh, no, I love you spending your time. Very much. I love bookshops, and I you do. And so, thank you very much for all. Oh, thank you. You add so much to the civility of British, of British society. Bookshops. You just add. You know, they are great statements of. Individualism, of eccentricity, of 
richness of life, of living uh, living through books as well as through all the other things we live through. So, so thank you very much for what you do. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. So there you go. That was the very thoughtful and humane Peter Oborn. Uh, Peter's book, The Assault on Truth, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump and the Emergence of a New Moral Barbarism is available from Mr. Books online at www.mrbooks.co.uk. And you can find links to this and uh, some of the other authors mentioned in the description for this podcast. Incidentally, I should mention we run frequent competitions and giveaways on Twitter. So follow us there and join us. Uh, it's at Mr. Books underscore Tom at Mr. Books underscore Tom. That's T-O-N. Again, the link is there uh, in the episode information. We're lining up new guests uh, for ideas and writing. So keep checking back at our website or even better subscribe on whatever platform you found us and you can donate to us too. Ideas in Writing is supported by Mr. Books Bookshop in Tunbridge, the home of independent, inspiring and imaginative books, gifts and conversation, including an exclusive range of book related and Mr. Books inspired T-shirts. So whatever you buy from us helps to keep an independent bookshop open. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I chose to attend Columbus State because of their updated curriculum. It really exposed me to the industry level of programming. Now, I have a career as a software engineer in Columbus's booming IT industry. Apply today at cscc.edu. Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an Acast supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much.